Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. Hello again and welcome to another episode of The Final Word coming to you very soon after the previous episode, the Ian Chappell episode which we put out which uh, has had a great response. Thank you to everybody for listening into that long interview and letting us know what you thought. We're one month away from the start of the World Cup. Keanu Reeves, whoa. Uh, I'm back home. Adam is in London. We're doing this across the oceans once again uh, and we've got some big topics to cover today. Not an interview but there are so many uh, large-scale debates flying around the cricket world that we know that we're going to soak up a good hour pretty easily just on those topics alone. They have to be addressed in depth. Um, there's a whole lot to do, Adam. Yeah, normally we have the popuri segment at the back of the show, but this feels like one omnibus of popuri issues, not to diminish them. They're all rather significant in their own right, but we'll be bouncing around a bit, so strap in. And as you say, Jeff, we're one month from the World Cup today, so the, the first game is on the, on the 30th of May and then Australia's campaign kicks off at Bristol against Afghanistan on the 1st of June so that's uh, that's prompted a a series of interviews from Aaron Finch today before he takes off for Brisbane for the for the camp they're having next week. It was a cracking interview, I should add, that he did on SEM with Jared Waitley. It's it's rare that you see a cricketer with their guard down the way that Finch did today when he was speaking about the the fairly rugged summer that he's just endured. I mean, remembering that it started off with the highs of receiving his baggy green in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Then there was obviously white ball cricket back in Australia. Test against India where he struggled and was dropped from the test team. Um, more white ball cricket, the big bash. Then he arrives in India after what really was a terrible summer and it's all on the line. He, he and freely admits that he had he suffered from, a, from anxiety through that period thinking that he might very well lose his spot in the side ahead of the World Cup despite the fact that he was leader. And then kind of the... The redemption story, if you like, of coming out of that India series and stitching together one of the all-time great uh, stretches against Pakistan and the UAE alongside Usman Khawaja to really come into this tournament back at the peak of his powers. But that kind of roller coaster that he documents with with Jared Whateley was uh, was really something I certainly recommended. It's great radio. 
And we've got this peculiar setup now where you've got all these Australian players being pulled out of the IPL, out of um, the, the business end of the tournament and some extremely competitive cricket. There's only one team that's um, missing the finals so far. Everybody else is still in contention and they're coming out of that in order to go and uh, do a warm-up camp in Brisbane. Yeah, not least Warner who finished with an, another half century. I think he made 108 other scores above 50 across 12 games. I mean, it's just, we've spoke about it a few times now, Jeff, but his, his form is glittering, but misses out on on the business end Steve Smith likewise it's kind of interesting that this camp in Brisbane ordinarily it probably wouldn't elicit a huge amount of attention but uh, I think uh, Robert Craddock made the observation there'll be TV crews everywhere um, watching uh, watching them go and do their paces they've got a couple of warm-up games against New Zealand through that process but the, the addition of Smith and Warner uh, is going to generate tons of attention until they sort of turn out for their first formal international uh, when that does roll around next month and they're apparently going to be dropping off at Gallipoli on the way, um, taking the Steve Waugh route, which Aaron Finch sort of dropped maybe by accident in his interview. Yeah, I, I, I noted that. He, he said that they were going through Gallipoli. I assume that means that the entire World Cup squad, although he didn't have much information of us Cricket Australia for a clarification there. I might get it while we're talking, and if we do, I'll read it out directly. Uh, very modern of me there. Uh, but no, he he, um, he did allude to that. So yeah, 2001, Steve Waugh took the Ashes squad um, through uh, Gallipoli en route to England. It might have been the one-day squad then as well, come to think of it, because they played one day as before they played the test. But in any case, it was the Steve Waugh side, famously in the slouch hats, Jeff. It was, uh, I mean, Steve Waugh has always um, sort of uh, disputed the characterisation of that and said that that was something they were invited to do rather than something that he suggested, but it did become a bit of a, a stick to whack him with um, <laughs> after the fact. Of course, it wasn't the first Australian side to wear slouch hats away from home. That was the, the Galahs in 1967, the Australian football team that went to Ireland. Um, it's a bit of a bit of a cross promotion with something else I'm doing at the moment. But anyway, uh, but, uh, but, but the slouch hats I doubt will be a feature uh, this time. I'm, I'm sort of wondering though, Jeff, if it's if they are going to be in Gallipoli on the way through, I might I might nip over there for it and uh, and see and write write, write about the experience because I think it would be quite interesting seeing um, the Australian side in, in in a place like that. Um, which does sort of, yeah, hold, hold a special place for, for a lot of Australians. Can you get to the bottom of the mystery of whether Istanbul is Constantinople? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we'll have that stash. <laughs> it, it, does, it does provide us with the most Steve War image of all time, though, which is the one at Gallipoli where he's wearing uh, the Australian slouch hat on top of his baggy green. He's got, <laughs> he's got them both on at once with, with one squished underneath the other and, and the slouch hat sort of tipped up. And I think he's got the, um, the wraparound speed deal as Sonny's on as yeah, well and it is as was it the is the most Steve War uh, image that could possibly be produced. It was a real hat oriented tour wasn't it because when the Wimbledon final was rained out on the Sunday between Goran Ivicevic and Pat Rafter they got, went along on the Monday mm. for when when, the, when it continued I think it was a set or two through when rain struck London that day and they all rolled up in their baggy greens and I think if anything that, that drew even more criticism. I've, I've googled Google imaged that more times than I, than I care to admit and, and the one person of course sitting out is Shane Warne wearing the sponsor's hat not wearing the, the baggy green shirt. I think speaking of wraparounds I think he's wearing an Oakley hat I reckon from memory I'm sure he is <laughs> and, and I think Fleming wasn't wearing it either right. Damien Fleming didn't wear it and never played again so draw your own conclusions <laughs> But we are a month away. We are a month away. I mean, I think the, the, the difference in language really, Jeff, is that we were talking about the uh, the first of June game 
as a real threat for Australia because of how well Afghanistan were going. And look, maybe that will that will be the case, but it's, it feels like they're going to England in, in a far better place than they finished the Australian summer. They have got their mojo back a bit. They have got, you know, the insertion of Warner and Smith, and we can debate how effective Smith will be, but it's hard to dispute that Warner will go go in and immediately be, you know, match winner as he, as he tends to be with the white ball. So... Yeah, the, the, the doom and gloom around this World Cup has lifted and Australia, you know, would, would definitely fancy their chances of a top four finish. And I think even though they're the defending champions, if they made the semifinals, that would be a pass mark given the format of this tournament. I know, I know they'll want to win and they'll want to make the final, but given where they've come from, if they, if they do get to the top four in what will be, a, I'm sure, a very competitive tournament, that, that, that wouldn't be a bad outcome. Yeah, Steve Smith exiting the IPL with a tournament strike rate of about 116, I think it was, doesn't really scream of a, a man in white ball form, but mm. we shall see if he can come good. So some of the big stuff we've got to cover on the show, we've got to talk about Alex Hales and his drug ban later on in the program. We've got to talk about the ongoing tensions between the BCCI and Cricket Australia and what that's resulting in and how that's uh, cost Australian players in the women's IPL. We've got a few other subjects to cover, but we think we should probably start with James Faulkner. This is one of those stories of the internet age in in that it basically burned out and had its cycle within about 12 hours on the internet, but um, yeah. but nonetheless, it frothed pretty hard while it was bubbling over. Yeah, and there is a link to the World Cup there, because of course, James Faulkner was the player of the World Cup final at the MCG four years ago, and we all expected he'd go on and have a huge international career, and he's very much on the outer now. He's still getting gigs around the world on the on the uh, on the T20 circuit. He's in the UK um, later this year again playing in the Blast. But but generally speaking, his star has diminished considerably. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a considerable following on social media. So when he popped up a post the other night um, to mark his birthday, it did generate a huge amount of attention. And we should go through what actually happened before we talk around the issues. So the, the post the post read birthday dinner with the boyfriend and and tags in the friend who we found out later is his best mate and my mother. Love heart, love heart, love heart together for five years. Now, that went up around two in the afternoon, my time from memory. It was sort of late night Australia, but middle of the afternoon. And, and a lot of naturally, with you know, Australia was asleep, but the rest of the world was awake. And people were speculating as to whether it was a real message or not. But, but shortly after the message went up, there, there were a series of comments from other Australian players and other professional cricketers around the world, for that matter, which appeared to be quite sincere, um, you know, in, in, with the sort of language you'd expect around a player coming out, such as it being courageous and brave and so forth. And you can debate whether they should be the words you but that's fairly common language I suppose when dealing with this particular topic and uh, when Faulkner woke up or rather by the time Faulkner would have woken up um, there were several stories published in India and after that um, quickly the Australian media when they woke up that they were you know it was all over the websites in the usual way reporting this tweet or sorry it was it was an Instagram post but it was um, replicated as a tweet um, as the first male Australian cricketer having come out on the basis of the sincerity of the post and the and what appeared to be the sincerity of the post and the comments that sat beneath it. So Faulkner then edited the post on Instagram, which you can't do on Twitter, much to our chagrin. Um, after boyfriend, he put in brackets, best mate, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, um, which seemed to signal that um, he, he'd been uh, misinterpreted. And that's subsequently what we learnt, um, we, we, you know, the briefings that went out quite quickly. Um, it was pretty late at night my time, but I assume, Jeff, through your morning was that these statements came out from 
James Faulkner in Cricket Australia and the and the uh, chief executive of Cricket Tasmania, Nick Cummins, who was um, quite aggressive and taking on the media and you know sort of a litigious streak in there as well by the sounds of things. So the, the, it moved very quickly, as you say, but that was the order of events until we got the response from Faulkner and CA. It was a peculiar one. I was getting messages from people late at night, Australia time, trying to confirm whether this was credible or not, basically. And, you know, from what I knew of James Faulkner, I didn't think it was the case, but you couldn't be sure. And essentially, no one could be sure overnight because he wouldn't have been contactable. So I think a lot of people were getting stuck into media outlets for reporting it without having, you know, quote unquote, verified the story. But I think when it comes directly from the player themselves on their own social media channel in and it can be read as being serious then it's not really um, unreasonable to take that as a source and and to assume that it's true rather than assuming that it's not true so it didn't seem unreasonable to to run with it and and i think most outlets covered themselves by saying this appears to be the case but when you're in a kind of publish or perish um, industry you either go with the story or um, sit around and wait for 16 hours until somebody wakes up who can confirm his own words. You know, that doesn't seem like a really viable way for most newsrooms to operate. There's a bit to unpack from that. So I am more sympathetic now than I was yesterday to some of the criticisms around media organisations going before checking. Now, initially my response was, that's bullshit. The tweet's there. You just go with it. But I'm also, you know, mindful that, um, there is an extra layer of checking that some stories require, and, and I and I understand where that point comes from. But what shit me was that that was the entire focus, seemingly, of the response from administrators. It wasn't about horseplay around homosexuality. It wasn't around um, trivialising, however unintended. Let's be clear about this. I don't think James Faulkner went out there to trivialise coming out, but in, in any case, that is the impression that could be arrived at quite reasonably. And the first instinct of administrators was to flame the media and to, to, you know, whether it's the hint of legal action, you know, turning the flames there rather than thinking, right, okay, one of our guys has, whether he meant it or not, fucked up. What we do next is we explain how he's fucked up and we explain the ramifications of that and we sincerely apologise for that and so on. But, like, that that seemed not to factor into the thinking. It was like, well, you know, media organisations have gone before checking. That's going to become the focus of our attention. And they did a bloody good job. The fact that it's probably the first issue that we're talking about out of this whole... um, a whole myriad of things we could discuss from this this this, uh, mm. this post and the response. The fact that we're talking about that first illustrates that CA have probably done a pretty good job of spinning this, and Cricket Tasmania, I should add. But really, my my concern has nothing to do with that. I mean, that's a point of debate. My concern is what I mentioned before, the effect that it has on people who've read this post. And remember, the first response, which I saw in my daytime while you were sleeping, people were absolutely elated. Not because to do anything with James Faulkner per se, but the idea that in 2019, an Australian bloke who plays in the Australian cricket team could come out as gay. What a huge step forward. What a massive leap Mm. through the barrier and so forth. And that's the sincere way that people responded to it whether that be journalists or, or, or cricket fans or members of the LGBTI community, that, that was widely considered to be a wonderful landmark moment. And that it was just a gag, just a bit of horseplay. Mm. That struck me as not just striking the wrong chord, but something that needed to be redressed after the fact, and it just wasn't. I think to try to convey that to people who were responding to it by saying, oh, look, it's no big deal, it's just a joke, there was that... <sighs> 
that little moment uh, for a lot of people of feeling like maybe they were a bit more included than they have felt or maybe they were represented in a way that they haven't been or maybe that um, that this is one more little bit of progress in terms of trying to improve the way that life is, the difficulties in life for so many people who are pushed to the margins of our society. And so to have that, to have that feeling of vindication and, and inclusion offered and then taken away again would have been extremely disheartening. Um, and I probably don't have quite as strong a view on it as you in that I I don't think there was any intent on Faulkner's part. I, I, think, I think about it in terms of, I mean, you and I have had a gag for a while. We, we work together closely all the time and we've described ourselves as platonic life partners uh, because we spend more time together than we do with our actual partners. And that's a joke between us it's not a joke about gay relationships but it's a joke about the amount of time we spend together i can i can see it as credible that james faulkner has a very close friendship with this mate of his they spend a lot of time together and it's probably a gag between themselves uh, about the amount of time they spend together rather than wanting to laugh at gay relationships or thinking that gay relationships are inherently funny i doubt there's any of that ill intent but i think in terms of putting it up in a public forum you've got to be able to expect when you're someone of that high profile that what you say is likely to be taken seriously and the very very obvious and likely way of that being misinterpreted um, that's exactly how it panned out and that should have been he should have been able to predict that and he should have been able to you know mitigate that yeah i I just think they, they missed a trick there i mean CA have such a proud record when it comes to this particular topic. So many players in, in Australian cricket have, have come out as gay, but, but none of them are men. Mm. But it hasn't marginalised the work that Cricket Australia have done. Of course, they endorsed the, the, uh, the, um, the marriage equality plebiscite what would have been what now 18 months ago or something like that, November 2017. Um, they've always been such an inclusive organisation. So I, I reflect on, I think about what if you are a, a bloke playing professional cricket in Australia or grade cricket, but let's say professional cricket where there's, you know, a, a degree of scrutiny where the, the public know who you are and there's media coverage and, and so forth. And, and what if you are gay and, and, you, and you see that this, this whole thing play out? Will this make you feel more comfortable or less comfortable? Some people have made the case, and this isn't an unreasonable point, that the way it was responded to so positively, so warmly, suggests that it'll make it easier for the next person, or the first person rather, to make this statement. But I I don't know if I'm so sure about that. The fact that it still suggests that this is a bit of a gag does not sort of say to me that it's going to make someone who's in that situation more comfortable than they were a couple of days ago. I mean, it's it's open for debate, but I don't think it's as clear cut as well. Everyone was very nice about it. Therefore, this will make it easier for someone to come out, especially when the, you know, the, the governing body, you know, run the old line at the bottom. Cricket Australia apologises for any unintended offence, which, as we know, we know at code for, which is basically if you, if you, if your feelings are hurt, well, sorry. I mean, that, that's what it amounts to. There's no mm. genuine contrition there. As I say, the first instinct from them was to was to flame the media, and to start talking about how media organisations, you know, might have legal problems, as it was briefed out to others. Shouldn't the first response there be to show a bit of candour, show a bit of contrition, for once, say, oh gee, you know, we might have pulled the wrong rein here. Not their fault, of course. As I say, the organisation has a lot of credit in the bank here, but to to have made a statement which was far more in line with the people I was talking about before, thinking far more about those people who have come out or who are gay or, or who have gone through this, what I'm sure is an incredibly difficult process as, as younger people. 
them to be the focus of their attention rather than the media houses and and, and the player in question who's who himself is who's basically told a bad joke that's what it amounts to particularly in an environment as you point out where there are a significant number of um, gay or bisexual players in the Australian women's teams and they deserve the support and to to feel like they've got the backing of their organisation fully as well um, in in terms of not making a joke about this. And it's all cultural, isn't it? I mean, it it all comes back to this. I know we've mentioned this before, but it all comes back to that that idea that, you know, if you maintain the views... I mean, I'm sure I know what the criticism of our conversation here will be. It's the same. It's usual bullshit. Um, it's all, you know, a PC, left-wing, wank, rah-rah. You know, you can, you can see it a mile out, and it's not that at all. But people get balkanised so quickly. There'll be the group of people out there who'll say, oh, I was just having a joke. Boys will be boys. You guys just fucking suck it up, you know, uh, and, and so on. And, and then there'll be people who have an alternative yep. opinion, which we're voicing now. And, you know, the ability to express any, you know, any understanding of the grey area. And I think that's probably where CA needed to be involved yesterday and, and sort of, yeah, support their player, but at the same time appreciate that there was more going on than, than the words in the caption of that Instagram post. And the immediate um, ridiculous troll argument was, oh, women call their friends girlfriends, so why can't men call their friends boyfriends? And you're like, it's, it's completely obvious that there is a historical difference between those two things. One has a well-established precedent and the other one doesn't, and the other one doesn't for a reason. And it, they have different, different implications. You know, language means different things in different contexts, and you can't just suddenly rewrite the linguistic history uh, of the language that you speak to suit the particular political point that you want to make. Another good point was, was made by a colleague of ours to me privately, which is that cricket change rooms are highly sexualised environments, and that bloody oath they are. Um, um, you know, we, uh, having been involved in them for the majority of my life, the, the comments that sat underneath Faulkner's Instagram post, either they are sincere and they genuinely believe that Faulkner was coming out or, or they were insincere and they were playing along with the joke. I mean, there's, it's fairly low down the pecking order of, of points to, to note here, but it's not ideal uh, that people were basically playing along after that initial post went up. I think that's that's something that we you know people should reflect on as well. So speaking of Cricket Australia pulling the wrong rein, we've got another pretty significant uh, horse riding mishap over the last week in terms of the disagreement between the BCCI and CA. An argument initially about scheduling of the men's ODI team, but an argument that has, in the process, um, stuffed things up for some of Australia's high-profile women's players who are unable to be part of the brief demonstration women's IPL that's going to yeah. be played shortly in May. So walk us through it, Adam. Well, these negotiations around the Australian calendar for next year, so the 2020 summer, um, where now Australia have to go to India in keeping with the Future Tours program. They were trying to negotiate a way out of going to India in that window, which has traditionally been sacrosanct, certainly in our lifetime, Jeff. There's never been a time where Australia have been overseas during the month of January, but they will be now, which have um, which has a, a knock-on effect to uh, the BBL and, and just generally how the Australian summer flows, the rhythms of the summer, not having the, the national side playing as they would have been against New Zealand in, in limited overs internationals. Instead, they'll be once again in India for the umpteenth time in a row. Funny that. Uh, but alas, the, um, the negotiations to try and... Um, remove that uh, extended to uh, this idea that the women uh, who were in consideration for the IPL women's miniseries for want of a better descriptor that they wouldn't be dealing with that until they dealt with the ODI predicament uh, that so went the, the leaked email um, I don't know where the email was leaked from I wouldn't 
I wouldn't wouldn't be so bold as to um, suggest that, but whoever leaked it was trying to do damage to Belinda Clark in Cricket Australia, who's the acting uh, executive general manager of, of the team at the moment. Uh, so that, that that's what occurred, and then I guess the, the fallout thereafter has been the suggestion of how much money the Australian players would lose, how frustrated that they've been thrown in the middle of this, an issue that has nothing to do with them, uh, nothing to do with the Australian women's team, yet they seem to be in the middle of it. Not for the first time, of course, in the 2017 pay dispute disaster. The women also were out of contract at the end of that World Cup period and of course they, they served to make a lot of money out of the pay deal and they subsequently did but um, they, they, were, they were right in the middle of that despite the fact it had nothing to do with them once more. So there's a bit of a pattern of behaviour here from Cricket Australia headquarters and the resolution uh, is yet to be arrived at and certainly they won't be playing in this tournament but um, Kevin Roberts, the Chief Executive of the organisation and Earl Eddings the, the recently appointed Chairman uh, are going over to India to talk to the BCCI and, and, and casting for that's a really important uh, set of discussions, Jeff. That was reported by Chris Barrett in the Herald a couple of days ago because uh, um, this will be a, a, a significant part of Robert's role as the, the new chief exec and, and, uh, and, and, you know, as a statesman, if you like, you've got to go over and try and sometimes um, solve these things diplomatically and, and I think that's going to be the job for Roberts and look we, we shouldn't prejudge because he's pretty new to the job when it comes to these sorts of things but it's going to be a big test for him. Cricket Net Australia have described this as a communications breakdown. How does communication break down in this way? Belinda Clark's email, basically, the BCCI, somebody there has contacted her to ask about the availability of Australian players, and she's replied to say that that availability can only be confirmed after the talks between the Mm. two chief executives are resolved about the men's team scheduling. Now, one, that seems a bizarre thing to say in the first place. How how are those two things related? And why is it that someone in such a senior position would be saying that? Was she saying that unilaterally on the assumption that that was the case? Or was that a direction from higher up? We don't have the information on this at the moment. But the idea that, uh, I mean, either those women's players were being used as some form of leverage to try to hurry up the negotiation, or there was a just a high degree of incompetence in bringing them into it in the first place when they shouldn't have been. But either way, it's a massive fail on uh, behalf of the higher-ups at CA. You can understand how these relationships are so tense. I mean, BCCI, the the giant, but, but CA were, were, were fully signed up to the big three with the ECB as well. These three countries were running world cricket, and they had a close collaborative arrangement under earlier administrations. Certainly when Wally Edwards was chairman and, and James Sutherland was chief executive, they were able to stitch that big three situation together back in 2013-2014. Now, it's not so clear. That that broke down, that the governance relationships were altered uh, uh, back in 2016, I think it was, with, via the ICC. And you see a situation where India are flexing their muscles with the ODI series. They are continuing to grow and, and CA are trying to push back. Uh, but it just appears as though here, without having any further information beyond what we've read and what we've seen, that CA have attempted to use this as a pawn in the negotiations, which having not worked has now backfired quite badly. It'll make for, for interesting listening when, when Kevin Roberts next speaks to an interviewer because I'm sure this will be part of the, the conversation. Indeed, it'd be great to get him on the final word. I've made overtures to CA that it'd be great to get Kevin on to talk to us. He's been always quite good to you and I, Jeff, explaining to us what's going on, both with the tape on and the tape off. So hopefully um, we get an opportunity to have that chat with him and he can explain how this happened. I guess the other question is, is it actually that big a deal? Because the BCCI were only interested in three Australian players for the women's IPL, Elise Perry, Elisa Healy and Meg Lanning. 
they're the three biggest Australian stars in the world. They've got the best name recognition. They are, I would hazard to guess, the best paid in the Australian setup. They've got the most endorsement deals. The amount of money they would have got for a three-match exhibition tournament wouldn't have been that huge. And in terms of boosting their profile or trying to get them signed should a, a full women's RPL go ahead in the next couple of years, that's not a drama at all because they will be the first to get signed regardless. So it's not like lower-tier Australian players were getting the opportunity to show their wares and sort of advertise themselves for future additions. And it's not like the uh, the money would have made much difference. You know, CA could probably pay them out the difference at not too great a cost anyway. So does it actually matter if they miss this tournament but yeah I, look I, I that's a fair fair way of saying it probably not but uh, look the fact that they aren't involved does send a, a bit of a signal that this is something that could be negotiated again in the future you know like that and, and really they're not i mean i don't want to undermine what ca have done with women's cricket either you it's yeah you've got to be careful to be balanced here the enormous investment in salaries, in the WNCL, in the WBBL, in you know the amount of bilateral tours they now go on on the in the ICC One Day League, which CA were instrumental in setting up back in 2014 and expanding indeed from 2021. So they again tons of runs on the board in this area. It's just a shame that they, for the second time in the space of three years, seen fit to put the women in the middle of something which fundamentally relates to the men. I, I don't think they'll make the mistake a third time. We are about at the halfway mark on the final word, and it is. Time for a game of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge is a game that we play on the Patreon page. The Patreon page is a place where people can go and financially support the Final Word podcast if they want to get involved. And some people, instead of giving a, a round number amount, they like to give us a boutique number that has a cricket significance that Adam and I then have to decode. Well, first up, a round number shout out and thank you to Tooves, who's come through with a generous pledge. He's the only round number one in this round because we've got quite a few nerd pledges to get through. And he regrets it too, I should add, Jeff. He reached out to me tubes after yep. making his pledge to say that he accidentally pledged a round number he meant to try and stump us oh. 444 i think he said am i not right in saying that 444 came up last it did one? andrew lowcock was 444 there's also a, a correction that from andrew johnson in the previous round 205 i can't remember what we decided 205 was but whatever it was we were wrong because it's actually alan border's <laughs> highest test score was what he was going for oh, yeah. um and apparently quite right. 205 was also on the number plate of his family car for a long time and so w- when alan border reached the 205 they were like we can never sell this car <laughs> we have to keep it forever I, I respect that as a kid growing up i used to like hector my father hector him in order to get a specialised number plate that would have 19 in it for Jason Dunstan. <laughs> it wasn't to be. It never, it never happened. But I certainly litigated the case strongly. As it happens, my parents now do have a, a number plate which relates to their business, but I, I always wish we could have had one of those Hawthorne ones that made my childhood. <laughs> with, with, a, with a Mark War reference in there as well somehow. <laughs> yeah, 139 or something like that. <laughs> so a little point for twos. You can actually edit the amount afterwards if you want. Dan Craddock's edited his from $5 to 501 which I think is a pretty obvious one for both of us. Very good. Uh, that's Brian Lara. I was reading about that the other week, mm. uh, the Brian Lara 501. So he made that in Warwickshire yep. in 1994. But amusingly, despite the fact that he made nine first-class hundreds that year in England, like just think about that for a second, nine first-class hundreds in the season, that's crazy numbers. Uh, he didn't lead the batting stats. Really? So that is to say he, the batting average that year wasn't won by Brian Lara with like 89.5 or something like that. It was a bloke by the name of John Carr who averaged 90 for Middlesex who 
to this day remains the ECB director of cricket or something like that. He's, he's involved in cricket ops on behind the scenes. And <laughs> I was interviewing him about something to do with the 99 World Cup the other day. But he came out of retirement. He'd retired, I think, in 89 or 90 or thereabouts. He came out of retirement in 92. And in 94, he had the, the season of his life. So he didn't make as many runs as Lara, but a lot of his hundreds were not out, which, of course, inflated his average and meant that <laughs> Lara, despite having the best season just about of all time, didn't win the batting award, so to speak, at presentation night. And uh, also that, that in also ruined the life and career of the wicketkeeper Chris Smith who dropped him when he was on 18 um, and had, had a very long and illustrious county career but basically has you know he, he's done interviews about it but even in those interviews you can tell the, the loathing and enmity he has for having to do another interview where he's like this is the only thing anyone ever asks me about in all of the years that I spent playing cricket it's the time I dropped one catch and you know famously maybe apocryphally said I bet the bastard goes on to get 100 now and he went on to get 501 <laughs> so, Five of them, that's right. so poor old chris smith um sorry but that's 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 the way the world turns sometimes let's hop into some numbers phil rhodes has sent us through a pledge for 185 185 oh hang on 185 185 185 is that atherton when he batted for against south africa million hours it, it no it definitely isn't atherton's high score in test cricket, 185, but more importantly, when he batted for... 10 hours, I think. I don't know, 11 hours or whatever it was to to uh, to save the test with Jack Russell at Johannesburg in 995, his finest moment. That has to be Atherton. Six, um, 185, it was 600 and something minutes, wasn't it, that that innings? Yeah, yeah. I, whatever it was, it was it's uh, it goes down rightly as... as uh, well, on the podium for the greatest innings of the 1990s. Who's the pledger there? Phil Rhodes. Phil Rhodes. Okay, well, well let's assume it's Atherton. Phil Rhodes sounds like an Englishman. I've just realised I can't say the name Atherton. I just realised I can't actually pronounce his name properly after all these years. Mike Atherton. <laughs> I'm sort of, I've got a pro- In transition, I seem to stumble over the second tee. Is he your Sam Menegola? <laughs> Somehow every no, every AFL commentator calls him Menengola and they invent an extra N from nowhere and just pop it in the middle. So it's like they, they yeah. save the N that they took out of Essendon. Essendon. That's, yeah. that's how you, you know, do there's it. There's some words you can't say, some words you can't spell. I still can't spell infrastructure. I never will be able to spell infrastructure. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew Singleton has come through. For a minute I thought John Singleton. I was like, Singo is, is supporting the podcast. But no, it's Andrew Singleton. <laughs> uh, unlikely. Unlikely. <laughs> One, he's probably in the moment busy. He's probably busy bankrolling some candidates on the central coast ahead of the election. This could be anyone because this is one ninety nine, and I reckon a lot of players have made one ninety nine. I know Steve Smith made a one ninety nine in the West Indies yeah. in twenty fifteen when I, he was leg before wicket. I was commentating on West Indies radio for that one ninety nine. The moment he was given out, so you know, oh. I was in the chair ready to ready to call the double hundred. My, yep. The second test I'd commentated and all the rest of it. You know, we had the great moment with Adam Voges on debut and Dominica the week before, and then yes, yeah, Smith. Uh, playing across the line trying to wicket, whip it through mid-wicket from memory it was given not out then reviewed and it was shown to be just hitting enough of leg stump and that was that but he he didn't get the 200 there but he but it took a while for him to actually break through and make his first double ton considering um, the sort of player he's become that is he, he bats for a really long period of time once he gets in but he managed to, to tick that off the list at Lords in 2015 in innings that you wrote about for Wisdom didn't you Jeff? Uh, yeah I did actually when I when I think back to that it's, it's in the big book. Um, How's it possible I remember that and you don't? Anyway, <laughs> So it could be Steve Smith but it could equally be 11 other players. Azra Din, Ian Bell, Dean Elgar, Matty Elliott, Andy Flower, Jaya Surya, Mudasa Nazar, KL Rahul, Sangakara, Steve Waugh and Eunice Khan 
have each made 199s in test cricket. The Steve Orr was a good one as well, isn't it? That's in the Caribbean in 1999. In the first test series he was overseeing, I don't remember where it was, but I reckon Colin Miller was down the other end with him. Alexander Davis has put in 219. I mean, 219 can very easily be an innings score. 219 could be an inning score. 219 could be any number of things. Uh, 219, uh, well, returning to the old faithful, the test player list for Australia, mm. Jeff, 219 to Corker. He played between 1961 and 1971. 67 test matches, a highest score of 210, 5,200 runs, 14 test hundreds, I think it was. William Morris Laurie. Bill Laurie was the 219th Australian Test cricketer. It must be him. It could be him, but it also interesting to note, both Mark Taylor and Michael Slater, the iconic opening pair from the 90s, each made 219 in a test match at one stage. That's a good number. That's a good number for Australian cricket. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to... Well, it could be any number of those things, but uh, I'll go with Bill Laurie as someone who... As two Victorians, Jeff, we uh, we were definitely on his side of the of the Bill Laurie Tony Gregg wars in the nineties, or pants and wars, I should say. Ashley Wyborn, <laughs> whose name sounds like an existential crisis. Wyborn, why was I born? <laughs> Ashley, you were born to bring joy to us in Nerd Pledge on the final word. Two thirty six. Two thirty six. Well, Sunil Gavaskar made a two thirty six in Test cricket. He did. That was the highest score for India in a test for a really long time. That's right, till Laxman broke Subsequently it. taken over by Laxman, that's right. So given we've had Laxman already feature in mm. this segment, it could very well be someone going back one and going to, to Gavaskar. What I remember during that innings is that one, when he was getting close to the... He was past the 200 and they were saying he could make the highest score and this became a huge thing across India in the space of, you know, 20 minutes. Suddenly everybody was locked on to, will Laxman make the highest score? And some company, I can't remember who it was, but they came through with an announcement saying they were going to give VVS Laxman uh, X thousand rupees, whatever it was, for every run that he went past Gavaskar's score. So he collected a pretty tidy check at the end of that innings because he, he got to 281, so, you know, went past it by... Yeah by nearly 50, um, and I'm not sure how many thousand or how many lakh or crore rupees he was getting for each run past the uh, the total, but he, he picked up um, a, a little bonus at the end of that test. The early IPL business model, right? <laughs> Very good. Who's next? Ryan H. Ryan, as in two words, Ryan. So it could be oh, someone okay. phonetically spelling Ryan H. Hello, Ryan. Either way, 294 is, uh, is the one that's come through there. Which uh, yes, two ninety four. This does. This is that's, familiar. Who's? That's something we've been at. That's that's. Is that a is that a Saywag uh, score? Two ninety four. There's a few. Uh, oh, it's Cook. It's Alistair like to Cook. Um, oh yes, Cook against India, India a couple of years ago. In yeah. in Birmingham. I was thinking we were no. I rec- oh, was that was that the one that was twenty eleven? Was that the one that he made in? 2011, right. No, he made another double hundred in India, but this is this is the one he made in England. This is that one. Yeah, he, he, he loved the big double, didn't he, Cookie? Um, well, he should have had a triple. He, How much more would it have annoyed everyone who thinks that he was uh, a bit shit if he'd also I've had often, a triple hundred on his record? I've often thought about um, Alistair Cook in comparison to Greg Matthews. This is what I do in my spare time, um, ladies and gents. Uh, so Greg, Greg Matthews has the, uh, in all cricket played, all test cricket played, the closest grouping of scores towards his test average. So his test average is 40 and change. But in terms of standard deviation, he no no player has played X amount of innings and had yep. so many innings 
groups as closely to 40. <clears throat> the opposite must be true of Alistair Cook. So he averages, finishes his test career with an average of 45, has several double hundreds, but so many low scores as well. Like Cook was known for having runs where he didn't get the double figures for eight or nine times in a row or something like that. So I reckon that those two players might have, might be the polar opposites in terms of being mm. consistent. Will Mack has come through. I'm pretty sure we can guess who that is. G'day, Will. Hello, Will. Thanks for coming through. 366 is the number, which is not a score that anybody's made because 365 was Garfield Sobers. So 366 sounds to me like a test innings score. I've quickly Googled it because, you know, that's what I do sometimes. And it turns out that Neil Fairbrother once made 366 for Lancashire against Surrey. Of course, (laughs) Neil Fairbrother, who's now a prominent player agent and someone who Will would probably deal with quite a lot in his job. So it's possibly a a, a sort of a a tangential shout out to Fairbrother, but, but also probably not. It's probably also not that India made 366 in a losing fourth innings against New Zealand in Auckland in 2014, although it could be. If you do... Think of something better than that for 366. Be sure to get in touch with Jeff and I. Uh, Jeff at Jeff Lemon Sport on Twitter and myself, Collins Adam, or uh, final word cricket at gmail.com. James Ralston has come through with 214. We've had 214, haven't we? Uh, we've had 216, which was uh, we thought was Clary Grimmett, but was actually an innings score from an Ashes test in 1982. Right. God, we have fun. Sure. We have fun. Oh, 214. I, I actually, you know what? I mentioned it last week. It's still in my head because the real Victor Trumper account put through a pledge, which was 240-something, and I said, that's not Victor Trumper's high score because Victor Trumper's high score was 214. Very good, Jeff. Yes, 244 is what the Victor Trumper um, cricket board alumni, alumni uh, put put through, we assume anyway. Uh, so, yeah, 214, Victor Trumper's high score, that, that's that's spot on. It's no, got to no be it. There. It's got to be it. There's it no way. Um, through. And that shows, you know, that's a callback from a listener who's listened to, to last week's episode and said, well, it's an injustice that no one's put through 214, so I'm going to put it through. So thank you to James Ralston. And to round us out for the day, Willem van Denderen, who has put through 305. 305 is not Brendan McCullum because his highest score was 302. Has anyone made 305 in Test cricket? No. Jeff, you're usually right on that. No, no one's it, made... Well, mm. It's none of the triple okay. hundreds. It could be Jeff Moss, who was a one-test wonder in 1979. <laughs> I doubt that someone's uh, delved into that during the, during the World Series mm. uh, era. Lots of one-day internationals would have had scores of... 305. Bangladesh were all out for 305 at Chittagong in the first innings in 2017 against Australia, which was when Nathan Lyon, I want to say Nathan Lyon, passed Graham Swan mm-hmm. for wickets taken by an off spinner. But again, that's it's fairly unlikely, but at least it's an option. The name Willem van Denderen does raise the question as to whether it might be something to do with South Africa or to do with the Netherlands. It could be either of those two things. Perhaps uh, we, we, should, we should put it back out to the community, and if you know what 305... Uh, means and, and why we can't see it at the moment, please let us know before the next ep and we'll, we'll round it off your nerd pledge next week. It's important to note that we are fallible. We are only human. Our cricketing computer brains can only retain so much information. We are not Andrew Sampson and we do not remember everything that has ever happened That on would the be field. fun, actually. One day, one, one day we should get Andrew Sampson to join us for the for yes, nerd pledge. absolutely. Great idea. Because he's, of course... The, one of the most freakish humans you could come across. If you don't follow him, jump on Twitter and follow Andrew Sampson. He's the BBC Test Match Special um, statistician and, and the SEN these days, SEN 1116's coverage. He won't require Google. His database might be drawn upon a couple of times, but he, he doesn't bother with Google. He, he's a traditionalist. He would never be so crass as to use Google. The um, 
the, the greatest expressionist statistician in the game's history, I'd, I'd venture to say. We have reached the end of Nerd Pledge. Thanks for playing along at home. Time for a break. We'll be back with more discussion after this. Hello, I'm Jared Waitley. Join us on the Final Word podcast. You are indeed listening to The Final Word. I'm Jeff Lemon. The other voice is Adam Collins. The Final Word brought to you this time as ever by Kookaburra. If it ain't cooker, it ain't cricket. And all of the Kookaburra players in the men's side of the draw have joined up in the Australian training camp this week. So the the blaze bat of Glenn Maxwell. Which one does Nathan Lyon use, Adam? The ghost. The ghost who walks. The Jimmy Jess. <laughs> he kind of is a, a ghost of off-spin bowlers past. You know, he's, he's revitalised. The um, the art in Australia, at least, where we might have undervalued off-break bowling for a long time, but uh, he's going to be vital in the upcoming Ashes and could be vital in the World Cup as well, Nathan Lyons. Mm. So uh, all of those Kookaburra players getting together in the men's camp and then the women's camp won't be too far off either because they've got to think about defending an Ashes series um, coming up at the start of July. They won't be going across... Uh, Elisa Healy won't be taking the Kookaburra bat across to the women's IPL as we discussed but they will be getting together sort of mid-May for a camp uh, Rachel Haynes another one in the Kookaburra family there uh, Sophie Molyneux so plenty of Australian representatives wielding the bird on the blade if you want to get behind their bats and pads and gloves and thigh pads and so on and a chance to win kit every week which is the main incentive to sign up to kookaburra.biz and sign up to team kookaburra and be part of it and by giving them your support your in turn giving validation of what they do for us they've had our back for a long time jeff and we're ever so grateful for it indeed now big topics of the week continue alex hales failed a recreational drug test with a hair follicle sample mm. and has been booted out of England's World Cup squad. He's geared his whole career over the last couple of years towards this tournament. Retired from red ball cricket, white ball only, and to be dumped on the eve of the biggest thing in the white ball cricketer's calendar uh, is obviously going to be pretty devastating for him, but a lack of sympathy for him in a lot of quarters on, on the idea that he's brought it on himself. How has it looked over in England as to how all of this has played out over the last week or so? There's a great piece by Vatushan Nahantaraja, who of course was on the final word, a couple of weeks ago at Lords. Uh, he's written that for Crick Buzz, uh, where he's the England correspondent, which kind of goes into a bit of the change room politics. So Hales, after the, the scandal with Ben Stokes a couple of years ago, which he was heavily involved in to the extent to which you know Stokes' defence um, relied on what Hales did as potentially being what caused the, the injury to the bloke that was on the ground. Like He was right in the middle of that, despite not getting charged himself that he came back and he was suffering from, you know, I guess depression for want of a better descriptor. I'm not sure if it's been called depression, but certainly it's been hinted at that he wasn't going well after that. And it's been a long road back to, you know, an even keel for him. Uh, he made runs against Australia in the, in the one day series last year, but I guess the, it's broader than just playing cricket. These things, it was his reputation, which was hammered pretty heavily. After that, he was given a suspended sentence by the ECB. Uh, he, copped a whack for some of his social media postings as well on Snapchat. It was all quite, you know, it was quite a lengthy sort of um, trawling through the mud type experience for Alex Hales. And he did have a lot of sympathy from the change room. And this is the point that Vish was making in his piece, that he, he's a big personality in there. He's loved by the guys and, and so on. So I think they've cut him a lot of slack through that period. And the suggestion is, is that when they went to the team camp um, last weekend in Cardiff, 
that Hales showed up and kept a pretty low profile. He didn't apologise to the group um, for having been pinged for recreational drug use, which, of course, um, led towards a 21-day ban. Uh, the, the the other bit to note in this that, that Vish elaborated on is that, and others as well in the England press, was that when he, when he first found out about the, the, the drug test, he said that he was excluding himself from Nottinghamshire's side during the one-day cup for, for personal reasons, and that was widely considered to be linked again to this idea that he wasn't going so well. He received a sort of a torrent of support from his teammates who were all had his back on, you know, social on WhatsApp and so forth, and it turned out that it wasn't about that, although... You, I'm sure he was struggling through that period, but it was to do with the the, the failed drugs test, which he didn't mm. reveal to his teammates at that point. So, this is the broader internal politics, which led towards, as we're you know, as we've we've been told through the the newspapers. I think the Telegraph broke this story, and, and the Daily Mail a couple of days ago that the players didn't protest him being excluded from the World Cup. That the players, as one, were were pretty much okay with him being left out at the conclusion of that training camp and that it was signed off by both the coach Trevor Bayliss and, and the captain Owen Morgan. So even though it, you know, it, it, there, there is, a, there is a, a fairly clear-cut thing that's happened, he's been banned for 21 days and that's his, that's his punishment according to the ECB, there, there's a far more going on behind the scenes which we've got a, you know, a bit of a flavour for now which helps explain why he's been excluded um, even though the ban was only a three-week three-week ban like there's no reason he couldn't play in the World Cup and that's what his management went to in their statement his management are quite forceful in saying that there there is no reason why his cricket going forward should be affected and they were given certain undertakings by the ECB that at the conclusion of uh, that three-week period that he'd be back to cricket and the cricket wouldn't be affected and so on but of course we know now that that it very much has been and, and his World Cup dream is over. It seems a peculiar one to me because the way that the structure of the system is set up. The first couple of times you fail a test for recreational drugs, it's treated as a player welfare issue. It's supposed to be confidential. It's kept between, I think, the England director of cricket and a couple of others. So Ashley Giles would have known and a couple of senior people would have known, but the national coach wouldn't have known. It's treated as a confidential player welfare thing. But at the same time, you have to have this ban. You have to be banned for three weeks. So somehow you have to be able to explain that ban. I would argue that it's legitimate to say it's personal if it's about something that's confidential. It's something that's supposed to stay confidential as a player welfare issue. That is a personal issue. And then to sort of make up this post hoc reasoning that says he didn't apologise to the squad. Where does it say that he's supposed to apologise to the squad? And how do you invent a justification saying that we've just assumed that our, our version of social etiquette is that he should have done this and therefore we're going to kick him out? Kicking him out of the World Cup isn't covered. And, you know, I'm not particularly a supporter of Alex Hales. I think he's been involved in a few pretty distasteful things over the course of his career. But I think in this instance, he's been treated with consequences that have been made up on the spot. And they've only been made up because they got reported. So I think it was Ellie Martin who broke the story in The Guardian, you know, doing doing his job, doing what he does. Um, if it hadn't got out, it, the issue would still have been confidential. The coach and other players wouldn't have known. Hales would have played in the World Cup and it would have been treated as the player welfare issue that it supposedly is. So it just doesn't taste right to me that uh, that they've basically punished him because it's gone public. You see this phenomenon in, in politics all the time, Jeff, where the reporting of an act changes the outcome of the act. Uh, and Hales has been pretty unlucky there, I think, that this has got out. Because as you say, how do we know how it got out? Ali Martin's one of the best in the business, if not the best in terms of news reportage. He's everywhere. But that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have needed a source to have got it to him. It's not something that would have fallen into his lap. So 
um, that he, he has every right, Hales, to feel disappointed that someone inside that that very close circle of trust has betrayed him and, and his information's got out. I think the thing that really also sticks in the throat for me is that, you know, there's a lot of sanctimonious stuff that goes on about uh, recreational drugs and bad decisions and he's let people down and blah, blah, blah. But this is a sport where people who win trophies go out and spray champagne all over each other. It's a sport where going out and getting blind with your teammates is just considered to be a normal state of affairs, especially, you know, at county cricket level. And um, But no less at international level for for most of the teams aside from you know teams like Bangladesh where there's in Pakistan where there's a majority Muslim quorum where that's less the case but certainly in uh, in the Western cricket teams getting blind on alcohol is never really questioned that's just normal but taking other recreational drugs is then somehow considered to be uh, some grave offence that has let down all the kiddies who are following the sport. Alcohol is a recreational drug mm. as much as anything else, and people take them for the same reasons. They enjoy the effects and uh, and they like the way it makes them feel. It's as simple as that. So there's the fact that there's still this, this different treatment, you know, and I don't know how long it's going to take to kind of break down that that inbuilt uh, stigma that so many of us have been conditioned to swallow, but uh, it just never rings true for me. It's it's hypocrisy writ large. And obviously, alcohol sponsorship is a huge part of cricket. Every board seems to have an official beer and an official wine and an official vodka. I think um, Australia or the ECB, one or the other, now have. And you look at the ICC World Cup that's coming up, and they've been slowly but surely releasing their official alcohol partners as well. So yeah, it's true. considered to be a a valid form of revenue and sponsorship and, and this is a, a far broader debate I did some research into this a few years ago and I don't remember many of the findings now but some the University of Western Australia have gone into this in, in enormous depth um, the effect of alcohol advertising on children and on kids and you know as we've said before we're hardly wowsers you and I but it is it, it is a part of this conversation, uh, the distinction made between booze and recreational drugs, and really it's not a matter for cricket boards to decide on that. That's a, that's a matter for um, lawmakers. But, yeah, it, it, is a, it is an interesting sort of thought experiment when you consider, like you say, that going out and getting on the lash is considered to be just part of cricket, uh, but recreational drug use is considered to be a sin. And the last of the big topics that I thought we should look at this week, and I'll give a content warning for the discussion that we're going to be talking about sexual assault, then you may not want to listen into that, so if you don't want to, you can hit stop. The former Worcester player Alex Hepburn was found guilty of rape in court this last week, which seems significant to me, particularly in that there's been a lot of recent discussion about Scott Kugeline, a New Zealand player who was acquitted a couple of years ago of a rape charge and then was um, selected to play for New Zealand earlier this year and, and also was picked up in the IPL and there was a lot of discussion about that while the Hepburn case was still in the background. It's significant, I think, because we often treat cricket as being different to football codes where things like sexual assault seem to come up more often there's kind of an idea that cricket is a a nicer place or that it's a, a gentler sport because it's not a ferocious contact sport and that therefore this kind of thing isn't a problem in cricket but obviously it is a problem in cricket i mean it's a problem anywhere where there are particularly where there are groups of young men these kind of things crop up 
but it becomes more obvious with athletes because there's a high-profile nature to the people involved and so the cases get reported where other cases involving civilians don't necessarily get the profile or the reporting. But it seems significant that there was a conviction in this case because we've seen a lot of cases that are relatively similar where people have been able to be found not guilty by juries. It seemed important that this was a jury that was willing to put a lot of weight on the testimony of the plaintiff and to find Alex Hepburn guilty in the end and he's been sentenced to five years in prison. We discussed earlier, Jeff, uh, at the start of the show actually about cricket being a, a heavily sexualised environment and this seems to have, according to the reporting, I haven't followed the case closely, I must admit, but there was a, a WhatsApp group amongst his teammates or some of his teammates, I should say, I don't want to paint them all the same brush, where some of the, the, the colleagues there at, at Worcester were participating in a, in a game a, a revolving around sexual conquests and Alex Hepburn is uh, on, I think the, the, the finding was on, on the night of the first day this was going on, this, uh, this crime has occurred. So it says a fair bit, I think, that, that there's a link there towards what, turned, what, you know, what was considered to be a game amongst teammates, which has spiralled pretty quickly. And I know that the, the PCA, the Professional Cricketers Association over here, uh, and I'm sure it's the case with the Australian Cricketers Association in Australia and around the cricketing world, put an awful lot of work uh, in the off-season into educating their players to make far better decisions than this. So um, I'm, I'm, I don't doubt they'll just redouble their efforts in making sure that um, players understand there are serious consequences for behaviour like this and, and being a you know a professional cricketer doesn't let you off the hook. I, I remember even as a kid, this is a really long time ago but um i did work experience at a footy club when i was uh when i was in school and i was at a professional football club and the week i was there happened to be there training on this exactly this topic i mean it's back in 2000 or something like that but they were being trained on the way they needed to respect women and treat women better and it was kind of considered a bit of a joke amongst those footballers that is to say i'm sure they understood there was a serious edge to it but there were a lot of gags thrown around in the room as they were receiving this training which i was sitting in on on account of the fact that i was the, the work experience student that week but that's always stood out in my memory as something that um, stood out as uh, something that was uh, you know uh, a weird experience for to see that mm. it was uh and we see evidence of it frequently, unfortunately, in football codes. And we're probably, as you say, not as conditioned to it with cricket, but it doesn't mean we don't need to continue to, to drill down and focus on it to avoid situations like this in the future. And it's something that's widespread. It's across national lines. It's across sports. Um, I think it's really significant that there's a conviction and a strong sentence in this case to give that indication that maybe things are changing a little bit in terms of being able to get convictions. This case was very similar to the Andrew Lovett case in the AFL in terms of uh, mm. the way things had panned out. He was eventually found not guilty. There was the big um, Irish, the Ulster rugby football trial with Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding in the last couple of years. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo's been accused of rape and he's managing to avoid being served with papers to appear in court because he's so wealthy and powerful he's able to insulate himself so that nobody can actually get close enough to subpoena him. Across all of these cases you see it, it basically comes down to one person's word against another or and these players saying, oh we didn't think we did anything wrong and our legal systems even support that a lot of the time where if a plaintiff not only has to prove they didn't consent they have to prove that the other person knew they were not consenting which is such a mm. difficult thing to actually prove so i mean our legal systems desperately need reform because there's really very little plausible reason why someone would make up a charge like this against someone else and then take it to court but there's a very plausible reason why someone would deny that charge in court 
And the thing that I noticed coming up a lot with the Scott Kugelung case where there were people saying he shouldn't have been picked for New Zealand and then there were other people saying, well, he's been found not guilty, so he has to be allowed to. Being found not guilty in court, it doesn't mean you're innocent. It means that there's not a sufficient standard for a jury to convict you. But that standard has to be very, very high to send someone to prison. So it doesn't mean that you didn't behave appallingly. And by his own evidence in court, Scott Kugelein behaved appallingly. Even if what he did couldn't be criminally convicted as rape, it was still abhorrent behaviour and he admitted to that himself. So that goes for Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding and other people in these kind of situations that they've, they've behaved in a way that is appalling towards another human being, even if that can't support a criminal conviction it's still extremely poor behavior so in that sense i don't think people who've done those things should be able to represent a country or there should be severe pressure on any sporting team that wants to pick them as a representative because they've shown the standard of their behavior and how they're prepared to act and the way that they're prepared to act isn't consistent with a civilized society so unless they've shown that that they've done a huge amount to rectify that and to show genuine remorse and genuine redemption then i don't think they deserve to be brought back spot on well said jeff we do have a better news story around women in cricket to finish on. It involves Namibia, Oman and the suburbs of Sydney. Yeah, not the most likely trio of things, is it? It's hardly a game of Cluedo. Um, the suburbs of Sydney, of course, are where Claire Polisak um, was moving up the ranks as an umpire um, through club cricket and now is the first woman to stand in an officially sanctioned Limited overs international. That was the the final of World Cricket League Division Two between Namibia and Oman. It was a tournament that had plenty riding on it because the four teams that finished, or the, the top four teams there, um, move into the the best way to describe it as the second division of one day cricket for the next three years. So they will be all granted. Um, limited overs international status as they try and qualify for the 2023 World Cup. So this is the start of a really long journey, but um, uh, both for um, the, the teams that were involved, which include the United States of America, who are part of the four who progress into the group who can now play one dayers and will compete against teams like um, Holland and Scotland and others who missed out on the World Cup this year uh, who aren't in the one-day league. In fact, actually, Holland are in the one-day league, aren't they? So it's it, the, the teams that missed out, I think, with the UAE, Scotland... Uh, and I'm scratching around for the other one. But in any case, there's a group of seven teams who now play off who aren't in the top 13 playing each other in the in the one-day um, league as it's now been sanctioned by the ICC, but will still have the chance to play in the 2023 World Cup. But but more important than all of that is, as you say, Jeff, the, the story of Claire Polisak, who, who stood in that international, and uh, we've seen plenty of women stand in women's one-day internationals and test matches, but this is a significant moment. Yeah, it's just a, a little further step. Obviously, the uh, elite panel is all male at this point and you know men have been the only ones umpiring men's cricket for a very long time but there's there's always got to be a first and then hopefully it's not too long before a second a third and so on um i think we saw that in the last couple of days with uh, adam mountford the tms producer putting up a a list of all of the women commentators who will be working on the world cup the men's world cup over the next few weeks and you know they've been really strong pioneers in just making sure they get a quorum of women's voices rather than having one or two exceptions being you know on the airwaves i noted last week in fact the the associate and affiliate nations are the ones that are on the cutting edge of this where gender isn't as much of a barrier traditionally because the game hasn't been as big in the country so ireland 
uh, I wrote a column a few weeks ago about Ireland um, and their progression with women's cricket uh, and not least off the field so uh, the way that they've appointed two women to their elite panel this year including Mary Waldron who happens to still be the, the wicketkeeper for Ireland so she's the, the international she's the wicketkeeper but, um, for, the, for the national side but also now um, making her way steadily up the ranks and it won't be long before she's umpiring first-class cricket. Indeed, she officiated in a, a first-grade game in Adelaide during the Australian summer with another woman, and it was the first time that two women have overseen a first-grade Division One game anywhere that people could see. So, yeah, there, there, is, there, is, there is steady progress being made on this, and we've seen in the Australian Football League that we now have a, an umpire officiating at the top level. We've had a goal umpire for several years, so, it, yeah, little small barriers, but, but important ones in improving that the game is one for all, not just in terms of playing, but but, uh, but standing behind the stumps as well. Time to wrap up, I think, for this week, Adam. We've got plenty more to cover in the few weeks ahead leading up to the World Cup. If you want to jump on the Patreon page and throw us a couple of bucks in support, you can do that, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the final word. If you want to email us, finalwordcricket at gmail.com. If you want to leave a rating or a review on a podcast platform, that would be sweet. Thanks again for people who were so kind about the Ian Chappell interview, which is now in the feed. It'll be the episode before this one if you happen to skip over it. There's been some lovely back and forth on Twitter and other social media forums about that. So thanks for tucking in. We, we love doing those long form interviews and there'll be plenty more across the UK summer once Jeff joins me in a couple of weeks. Yeah, there'll be plenty of good opportunities and interesting people to talk to. If you've got any suggestions, uh, let us know. Someone was emailing in suggesting we interview Mick Jagger. Um, if anybody knows how to contact Mick Jagger, <laughs> let us know. We'll give it a crack. Thanks to Kookaburra for their support. Thanks to Bad Producer Productions for backing us. And thanks to you for listening. This has been The Final Word. We'll see you next time. I had to go about it, write it out. 